This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode one, So Far, So Far to Go, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Karens, here with Dan Creeder and Dan Belton to bring you our thoughts on the LIBOR replacement process. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. The process to transition from LIBOR to SOFR is underway in the United States. While progress has been made, substantial challenges remain and must be worked out before 2021 when LIBOR panel banks will no longer be compelled to submit quotes. There is a sense of urgency given the size of the derivatives and cash markets referenced to LIBOR and the relatively short amount of time to transition away from LIBOR. What is SOFR? How does it differ from LIBOR? What progress has been made toward implementing the new rate and what challenges still exist? Dan Belton, why don't we start with you? Can you give us a bit of background on why LIBOR needs to be replaced? Sure. So, you know, from a very high level, LIBOR is a flawed rate when you're looking at it in terms of being a reference rate. The primary reason that LIBOR is, there's problems with LIBOR is because the transaction volumes behind it have declined significantly over the past 10 years or so. So what I mean by that is LIBOR is in term unsecured bank borrowing rate. And over the past decade, banks have sort of restructured their funding and rely less on term unsecured borrowing. As a result, the, the transactions underlying LIBOR have declined and LIBOR is no longer based on a robust and liquid market. Secondly, because LIBOR is based on a survey and not actual transactions, there's some issues that come in, come along with that. For instance, the quotes could theoretically go away and cause some market disruptions on a, any given day. And third, and probably the most publicized reason that LIBOR has to go away is it's susceptible to manipulation because of the two reasons I just mentioned. You've heard a lot about the LIBOR rigging scandals and bankers being jailed for their participation in these scandals. And for these reasons, we have been moving away from LIBOR and towards rates that are better as reference rates. So you mentioned that LIBOR is the reference rate for most of the derivatives market and that underlying transaction volumes have declined. And Dan Creter, I'd like to bring you into this conversation as well. How large are these exposures in both the derivatives and cash markets? And what does the underlying market actually look like? Well, most recent estimates at the end of 2016 pegged the size of the market referencing LIBOR at about $200 trillion. And it's likely that the market has continued to grow since 2016, since LIBOR has continued to be the go-to rate. And to put that number in context, this is about 10 times the size of current dollar U.S. GDP. Of that $200 trillion, 95% of it is in the derivatives market, which leaves 5%, but it's still substantial $10 trillion in the cash market alone. Now, in terms of the volume of transactions underlying LIBOR, the most heavily referenced tenor is three-month LIBOR, and the median daily volume in that market is only $1 billion. On most days, it's actually less than $500 million. So the actual transactions, the price discovery of LIBOR, is a very small fraction 
of the LIBOR market. And we're talking less than 1%. Wow. So we have a $200 trillion market in terms of gross notional exposure and only about $500 million to a $1 billion in underlying transactions. Given just the size of this market that's referenced to LIBOR, and Dan Belton, I'll go back to you. Has there been any thought to fixing LIBOR to make it a more suitable rate and one that could potentially stick around longer than the end of 2021? You know, there has. Um, so earlier this year, the ICE Benchmark Administration, or IBA, unveiled a new submission methodology called the Waterfall Methodology, whereby panel banks would submit LIBOR in a new way. So what this did specifically was it categorized different transactions that could be classified as LIBOR transactions into three different levels, level one, two, and three. So level one transaction consists of unsecured deposits, CD, and CP. So if a bank on a given day funded in one of these markets, it would submit that as its LIBOR fixing, and that would be it. However, if, if it didn't, and in 70% of instances it did not, it would revert to a level two or level three transaction. As you went move progressively down the waterfall, these transactions become more based on derivatives markets such as FX forwards, futures, swaps, repo, and a bunch of different transactions. Um, and so the upshot of this is that moving to this new methodology results in a much more volatile LIBOR rate that is, is more synonymous with with derivatives markets as opposed to sort of an ambiguous way of, of submitting that panel banks might have done in the past. However, at the same time, because there's less ambiguity, there's probably less litigation risks from the standpoint of the submitter banks, and it makes it marginally more palatable for these banks to continue to submit LIBOR going forward. So the waterfall methodology basically attempts to tie LIBOR to more transactions, but it's still not robust enough. So can you tell us a little bit about this new reference rate, the SOFR reference rate? Yeah, exactly. So LIBOR, as I've mentioned, is sort of inherently flawed. So there is a, a, a need to continue to move away from it, even as the ICE Benchmark Administration is trying to sort of reform it. So we're moving towards the secured overnight financing rate, or SOFR, which is a repo rate. So this process all started basically in 2014 when the New York Fed convened the Alternative Reference Rates Committee, or the ARC. And the ARC's goal was essentially to find a new reference rate that would eventually replace LIBOR. Three years later, in 2017, the ARC announced that SOFR would be the new rate. A month later, in July of 2017, Andrew Bailey of the FCA announced that they would no longer compel banks to submit LIBOR after 2021. So this 20, end of 2021 date is going to be an extremely important one for this transition process because it represents the first date that LIBOR might cease to exist. Also, Bailey's announcement in 2017 was kind of the first real threat to the market that LIBOR might realistically go away in the relatively near term. So you mentioned SOFR is based on underlying repo rates. Why was SOFR selected rather than a borrowing rate that was tied to bank credit? So the ARC selected SOFR based on a, a variety of characteristics, but the one that they favored and the reason that they ended up choosing SOFR was that it's based on a vast and deep market of underlying transaction volumes. So in a given day, there's something like $800 billion to $1 trillion worth of repo transactions that make up SOFR. Now, further, because these are collateralized and secured by treasuries, these are robust volumes that do not go away in times of market stress, which is a desirable quality of a reference rate. 
So the reference rate is based on a much more liquid and deep market. Can you tell us specifically what goes into SOFR? Sure. So there's three types of repo transactions that make up SOFR. There's tri-party repo, general collateral financing, or GCF repo, and cleared bilateral repo. However, it's worth noting that about 98% of SOFR transactions are made up of tri-party or bilateral. So every day, the New York Fed, who administers the rate, will take all these rates, compile them, and chop off the bottom 25% of these rates in order to get rid of specials. Around 8 o'clock the next morning, the New York Fed will publish the volume-weighted median trans- of these transactions. So chopping off the bottom 25% basically means that the SOFA rate is going to be higher than the GC rate. How does that, how does SOFR compare to other short-term market rates? Right, exactly. So we think that because they chop off or get rid of the bottom 25%, that's a pretty conservative way of dealing with specials because on a given day, probably less than 25% of repo transactions are specials. So we think that this biases the rate a little bit higher. In terms of how it compares to other rates, well, because SOFR is overnight and secured, it's significantly lower than LIBOR on a given day. It trades relatively close to Fed funds on average. Usually you would expect a repo rate to be a couple basis points below Fed funds. SOFR is usually about in line with or maybe a basis point or two higher than Fed funds, especially recently. Uh, The reasons for that, like you said, we think that SOFR is biased a little bit higher because of the construction methodology of it. Another reason, another important driver of of SOFR is treasury bill supply. Treasury bill supply is elevated recently, and that's pressured repo rates and SOFR with it higher. So we covered quite a bit of ground on why LIBOR needs to be replaced and what exactly SOFR is. And Dan Creeder, I'd like to bring you back into the conversation. Can you summarize some of the biggest challenges that are coming out of the differences between SOFR and LIBOR? Yeah, we've identified three primary obstacles that remain in the way of SOFR replacing LIBOR, and I'll just list them here very quickly in order of easiest to solve to most difficult. First, there's a timing difference between SOFR and LIBOR, as SOFR is a daily backward-looking rate, whereas LIBOR is a term forward-looking rate. Secondly, there's a difference in what is measured by SOFR and LIBOR. And finally, what do we do with all these outstanding contracts that currently reference LIBOR, what we refer to as legacy contracts, if LIBOR does indeed go away? Well, thanks, Dan. Let's start with the timing difference between SOFR and LIBOR. What problems does this difference present, and why do you say it will be the easiest issue to solve? Well, starting just with the problems, LIBOR is a a forward-looking term rate, which means that for any given interest rate period, the rate is known at the beginning of the period, whereas with SOFR, it's backward looking. So you wouldn't know the actual rate over a three month or six month period until that three month or six month period has ended. For the derivatives market, this isn't a big deal. Derivatives market participants have had OIS style swaps that do it in arrears for years now, and they're more familiar with that. Where the timing difference comes in, in, into question is in the cash market things like loans and floating rate note securities, where the market is more accustomed to to having a forward-looking rate and may even require one for two reasons. First, from a familiarity standpoint, most people are more familiar with knowing the rate at the beginning and, and can then plan for what their interest expense is going to be in the next interest rate period. And secondly, some of these automated systems out there that execute contractual obligations like payments, to banks or on to end investors require the rate be known at the beginning of the period. So 
for these reasons, it's generally considered that there needs to be a forward-looking term SOFR before it could realistically replace LIBOR. Uh, and I say this is the easiest one because of the three issues I mentioned, this is the one where there is a clear plan. The ARC committee that, that Dan Belton mentioned earlier has what they call their PACE transition plan, which concludes at the end of 2021 with the establishment of a term SOFR. We should note here that ARC is running slightly ahead of their timeline for their PACE transition plan, but even in an aggressive scenario, it's unlikely we'll have a term SOFR prior to the second half of 2021. So how will this new term SOFR rate be calculated? Well, ARC has announced that they're going to use some combination of futures or swaps to calculate the term SOFR. In most recent proposals, it's been the futures market, but we've seen some examples from other countries where the swaps market has been used as well. But either way, the most important factor for getting a term SOFR is having deep, liquid, and actively traded SOFR futures and or swaps markets. And we have seen significant progress on that front in 2018. Starting in April, CME began offering SOFR futures. Then in July, LCH began clearing SOFR OIS-style swaps and SOFR basis swaps. And then in October, CMA began offering clearing of SOFR products using SOFR PAI and discounting. So we've seen a lot of progress in the SOFR futures and swaps market. From a volume perspective, trading in these markets remains low, but we should note that they're off to a good start versus historical other rates. Compared to Eurodollar or Fed fund futures, we're seeing more volume in SOFR now than those rates had at their implementation. And we should also note that we may start to see uh, more liquidity in SOFR futures now that FASB has officially declared SOFR as an approved hedging tool for banks. This means that to the extent that banks actually want to hedge with SOFR, they now can for the first time. So we should see more trading in SOFR for that reason, just more trading generically over the next three years that will allow the markets to be liquid and reliable enough to, to back the data for a term SOFR. So this does appear to not be a, a problem by the end of 2021, we should have a term SOFR, but this issue obviously bears close uh, monitoring. Well, thanks, Dan. So you highlighted two differences between LIBOR and SOFR. The first is the timing difference that you just discussed. And the second is the credit issue. While SOFR is a near risk-free rate, LIBOR has a bank credit component embedded in it. Can you discuss any issues arising from this credit difference? Yeah, absolutely. The credit difference between LIBOR and SOFR has a potentially very large impact on one of the most widely used in, in primary uses for LIBOR currently, and that, that's hedging. Since LIBOR is defined as the rate that a bank can borrow on an unsecured basis, it's usually been well correlated with credit spreads in the past. So when we have a period of market stress, for example, when credit spreads widen, we usually see LIBOR widen in comparison to other short-term rates as well, which makes it a, a very good hedge against credit spread widening. SOFR does not have the same credit component in it, which means that for hedging such as asset swaps or even macro hedges at the ALM level of banks, they're unable to hedge the credit spread widening that LIBOR used to do with SOFR. And this, this has important implications for the financial markets. So what are the implications of this reduced ability to hedge with SOFR? In our opinion, this is one of the most challenging aspects of the LIBOR transition. And to this point, we actually haven't seen much discussion on the issue. I mean, ideally, you would have some new mechanism arise that could take the place of LIBOR's function as a hedge against credit spread widening. This could be in the form of CDS or some index tied to corporate bond spreads. But we don't have anything like that yet. And unless something develops in the next two years, we think this lack of hedging 
will likely result in just wider credit spreads across the board. Without the ability to hedge against credit spread widening, it's likely that investors will demand more spread as compensation for the potential for spread widening that they can no longer hedge. Thanks, Dan. You mentioned the final obstacle to LIBOR replacement earlier was the fallback language in legacy contracts. Can you expand on that? Yeah, sure. But first, I want to make a quick distinction here when we talk about LIBOR fallback language. There's the derivatives market and the cash market. And for derivatives, the LIBOR fallback language issue isn't that important because there's really just one market entity, which is ISDA, that controls the entire market. So to transition from LIBOR to SOFR, it really just takes one amendment from ISDA and the LIBOR fallbacks will be strengthened across the whole spectrum of derivatives markets. In the cash market, that's not the case. In the cash market, we don't have one market entity and we have very different LIBOR fallback language across sectors. It's also important to note here that the LIBOR fallback language that exists currently was never envisioned to deal with a permanent discontinuation of LIBOR. It was meant to be a a short-term temporary fallback in case some market disruption caused LIBOR to fail to be published on a day or two, not deal with it, LIBOR going away completely. And so it's unsurprising it does not do so effectively and very inconsistently. We have loan markets that call for other rates taking LIBOR's place, sometimes prime, sometimes the lender picks the rate, sometimes the mysterious calculation agent picks the rate. My personal favorite in the floating rate note market, many floating rate notes revert to fixed if LIBOR goes away under the current language. So clearly, the weaknesses in LIBOR fallback in cash products, which, as we talked about earlier, is $10 trillion, need to be shored up before LIBOR could stop being published. So what needs to actually happen to solve this issue of cash market contracts? Well, first and foremost, all new cash market products, loans, what have you, have to have stronger LIBOR fallback language embedded in them right now. And we are seeing evidence that that's happening slowly, and it's certainly not happening across the board yet, but it is happening. And once we've reached that point, then we have to renegotiate all existing contracts that don't have strong language. And just the sheer size of that effort, it it makes it very hard to think that 2021 is a realistic date. Uh, We have to have every contract renegotiated, and that renegotiation process is made more difficult when you consider the difference between LIBOR and SOFR. As we talked about earlier, since there are different rates to equivalize the payments, you have to have some adjustment to SOFR. A spread has to be added to SOFR to make things equal. But we have to consider some borrowers that might be less familiar with the LIBOR replacement process that aren't familiar with what SOFR is. So if they have a contract now where they have a bank loan, say they're borrowing at LIBOR plus 50 basis points, and then the bank comes to them and says, okay, LIBOR is going away. We need to renegotiate this contract, and your new rate's going to be SOFR plus 80 basis points. Optically, it may appear to that borrower that his borrowing costs are going up. Even though they're not really, it may appear that way. So not only do you have the sheer size of the market making it challenging, also a significant educational effort needs to go into it before the renegotiation could even happen. So in terms of you know the fallback language and the trigger date, assuming the trigger date would be the cessation of LIBOR being quoted, how will the spread be set between LIBOR and SOFR on that trigger date? And, and this is another very challenging aspect of the LIBOR replacement. We, we do finally have some guidance on what that's going to look like. Recently, ISDA made an announcement that they are very likely to use a historical average approach that will make SOFR equal to LIBOR based on some fixed spread over a time period before LIBOR ceases to be published. Now, there's a lot that's unknown here. We don't know 
how long the look back period is going to be or the time frame that they're going to use. But the most important thing, though, is that it's going to be a fixed spread. And with it being a fixed spread, there's a very good possibility there's going to be some value transfer. No matter what time frame they use or the look back period, it will be fixed. And that means that it no longer reflects the future expectations for what LIBOR would have done in the future. And that means that if LIBOR were to blow out, uh, there's going to be a clear value transfer to the borrower that no longer has to pay the higher rate and vice versa. So we have the challenge of the size of the market. We have the challenge of the educational effort. Now we have the challenge of getting our arms around what this fixed spread and the value transfer rate implies means for the market before the renegotiation process can be complete. It makes it very difficult that all three of these factors to think that we could have sufficient LIBOR fallback language in the cash market by the end of 2021. Given these challenges and given the size of this market, you mentioned $10 trillion, has there been any talk about extending the transition period in order to provide a more seamless, less disruptive transition? Yeah, there has started to be some talk about that, most notably from the working group on euro area risk-free rates, which has started to suggest a two-year extension of the provisional period to ensure a safe transition from LIBOR to SOFR. So Dan, what would a two-year extension provide? Well, a two-year extension really provides the most important thing to, to the market, and that's time. We discussed the problems that, that exist in, in fallback language for cash products, but we should also note that most cash products are relatively short in nature and mature within five years. In fact, our estimates have that in the next five years, over 80% of financial contracts tied to LIBOR will have matured. So if we take a step back and we think about what's motivating regulators right now, it's that their goal is to get rid of LIBOR, but they want to get rid of LIBOR in a seamless process that won't result in significant disruption in the financial market. So if we fast forward to 2021 and we see that there's a clear plan to replace LIBOR, that there's futures trading, that derivatives contracts are solved, cash market contracts are now all have you know robust language. We just have this problem of some existing contracts that need to be renegotiated, we can easily see a scenario where the regulator says, okay, we're just not ready yet. We're going to extend the publication of LIBOR for a couple more years to ensure that this process goes smoothly with ultimately the goal of LIBOR going away being accomplished at the end. And that is what we expect to happen. So we've covered an incredible amount of information on the progress made toward transitioning from LIBOR to SOFR. Many challenges still exist. And I look to you for updates as the transition progresses. Thank you both for sharing your expertise with us today. Thanks very much, Margaret. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.carens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. 
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.